0: Warning, The Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. The Westwood One Podcast Network presents The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to today's podcast. Today we're talking about the flare-up in the Middle East, most particularly between Israel and the Palestinians at this time in Gaza. But behind it all, it is said that it's uh, Iran. In fact, the violence between those living in the Gaza Strip given back as a peace gesture by the Israelis a number of years ago and turned into a launching pad for rockets. This violence, apparently, was being steamed up by Iran. Now, I won't go into all the details of it, but it's getting serious. Yes, there's a ceasefire for now. In fact, the United States sent an aircraft carrier strike group to the area, including a bomber task force In very, very short notice, because they say Iran and Iranian proxies were planning to attack U.S. forces in the region, U.S. forces in the region. And so the USS Abraham Lincoln and Obama task force were sent out over this. Now, National Security Advisor John Bolton worries me. He's the one who got us into Iraq on the false pretense of weapons of mass destruction. And given that all governments are not to be trusted, all governments are not to be trusted. That includes all governments, are not to be trusted. I have no idea whether to believe this story. So, the statement says, the United States is not seeking war with the Iranian regime, but we're fully prepared to respond to any attack, whether by proxy, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or regular Iranian forces, the statement said. Who knows? Then Bolton warned on Sunday, warned Iran of unrelenting force and tensions in Gaza. okay. So then they strike a cruise after 700 rockets from the Gaza Strip into Israeli territory, killing four Israelis, injuring dozens. Uh, Netanyahu brokers a truce, and he gets criticized today, Monday, for agreeing to a ceasefire with the militants in the Gaza Strip. The agreement was brokered by Egyptian mediators in Cairo, which brought an end to this latest round of violence between the Gazans and Israel. No one knows what the terms are. No formal Israeli confirmation. But meanwhile, there's a great deal of strife in Israel over this. There's a leader opposition by uh, Benny Gantz, whoever he may be in Israel, said that the agreement by Netanyahu of a truce is a capitulation that only lead to more fighting. I guess they want a total war. I don't really know. Hamas and Islamic Jihad said we're close to open war with Israel. I don't know who, who, who's leading them, but they're not going to win that one. So that's what's going on, and we're going to talk about something somewhat related to this, but not directly related to this, in today's podcast, and that is really simple. Three minutes over Syria, how Israel destroyed Assad's nuclear reactor. That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how Israel destroyed Assad's nuclear reactor in 2007. Its air force destroyed a Syrian nuclear reactor on the night between September 5 and 6, 2007. And by the way, tied into today's news... The reactor was built by North Korea, and it was designed to produce plutonium as fissile material for nuclear bomb. And today, bombs, this is the inside story of this attack and the intelligence-gathering processes, both successes and failures, that permitted this to happen as disclosed by the central players themselves. We will be speaking with Yaakov Katz, an American-born Israeli journalist, who uh, wrote this book that we're going to be talking about today. The book is called Shadow Strike. The author is Yaakov Katz. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Do you know anybody who doesn't do better with a good night's sleep? Well, let me tell you about me. If I don't sleep well, I don't work well. Let me be very clear. Forget about Happy. I'm not even productive. If I don't get a good night's sleep, I can't do a good show. And I'm sure it's the same for you. It's as simple as that. Now, if you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, I've got a solution for you. Purple mattress. Now, why? Who is the purple mattress? How does it differ? The purple mattress will probably feel different than anything you've ever slept on before. Why? Because it uses this brand new material that was actually developed by an actual rocket scientist. You heard me right. It's not like the memory foam that I've used or that you've heard about. No, it's not memory foam. This is astronaut stuff. This is rocket science sleep. The purple material feels very unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time. So it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Plus, it's breathable, so you sleep cool, right? It gives you this zero-gravity-like feel, so it works for any sleeping position. Let me repeat this. This was developed by brothers who've been developing cushioning technology for 30 years on things such as medical beds, wheelchairs. But it was developed by an actual rocket scientist. Zero gravity field while you sleep. It's 100-night risk-free trial. 100 nights. You're not satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. The 100 nights, that's a long time. Backed by a 10-year warranty, free shipping, free returns, free in-home setup and old mattress removal. You're going to love purple, and right now I have a great deal for you. You're going to get a free purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. You heard me right, free pillow when you purchase a mattress. Now, that's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text SAVAGE to 84888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text SAVAGE to 84888. Let me repeat that, S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 84888. S-A-V-A-G-E. Text to 84888. Once again, because I know you didn't write it down, you're going to do it now or I'm going to be mad at you. Text it to Savage, S-A-V-A-G-E, to 84888. Message and data rates may apply. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. Not only does Israel face threats on their own borders, but they also face them from the American left. You see, while the United States has arguably been Israel's strongest ally through the years, those on the left repeatedly have attacked Israel, and now it's escalating. And while I believe Israel needs to make its own decisions, that is quite different than being actively belligerent towards Israel. Listen to what Bernie Sanders said last month about Israel.
1: I am not anti-Israel. But the fact of the matter is that Netanyahu is a right-wing politician who I think is treating uh, the Palestinian people extremely unfairly. What I believe is not radical. I just believe that the United States should deal with the Middle East on a level playing field basis. In other words, the goal must be to try to bring people together and not just support one country, which is now
0: run by a right-wing you know, dare I say, racist government. Now, in Congress, you have a Muslim sisterhood, a new faction of militant Muslims who are parroting the Palestinian party lines, such as Ilan Omar, the most ungrateful woman in the history of America.
2: Most of the things that have always been aggravating to me is that we have had uh, a policy that makes one superior to the other. And we mask it with a conversation that's about justice and a two-state solution when you have policies that clearly prioritize, um, one over the other. Our relationship really with, uh, the Israeli government and the Israeli state. And so when I see Israel Institute, um, law that, that recognizes it as a, as a, as a Jewish state and does not recognize Um, the other religions that are, that are living in it and we still uphold it as a democracy in the Middle East. I almost chuckle because I know that if, you know, we, we, we say, we see that in, in any other society, we would criticize it. We would call it out. We do that to Iran. We do that to any other place that sort of upholds its religion.
0: And more anti-Israel. Hatred is coming from know-nothings like Alexi Occasional Cortex. Listen to this one.
2: What people are starting to see, at least in, in the occupation uh, of, of Palestine, is um, just an increasing crisis of humanitarian condition. And that, to me, is just where I tend to mm-hmm. come from on this issue. You use the term, the occupation of Palestine. Mm. What oh. did you mean by that? Oh, um... I think it, what I meant is like the, the settlements that are increasing in, in some of these areas and and places where, um, where Palestinians are experiencing uh, difficulty in access to uh, their housing and homes. Do you think you can expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd also just, I, I am not the expert on geopolitics on this issue, you know.
0: Now, our last
2: administration
0: was definitely antagonistic towards Israel, as evidenced by the comments of our former Secretary of State under Obama. You remember him? John Kerry. Let's listen. Today, there are a number,
1: uh, there are uh, a, a, a similar number of Jews and Palestinians living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. They have a choice. They can choose to live together in one state or they can separate into two states. But here is a fundamental reality. If the choice is one state, Israel can either be Jewish or democratic. It cannot be both. And it won't ever really be at peace. Moreover, the Palestinians will never fully realize their vast potential in a homeland of their own with a
0: one-state solution. Not to be outdone was the first, uh, well, let's say, crypto-Muslim president. And that would be Barack Obama himself, who could see no way that Israel could remain both Jewish and a democracy. He's a man who grew up in a madras. He was educated as a Muslim student. And so his sympathies lie with Islam. He just should have said that they do. In light of shifts in Israeli politics
1: and Palestinian politics, uh, a rightward drift in Israeli politics, a weakening of President Abbas's ability to move and take risks on behalf of peace uh, in the Palestinian territories, in light of all the dangers that have uh, emerged in the region uh, and the understandable fears that Israelis may have about a, the chaos and rise of groups like ISIL and uh, the deterioration of, of Syria, in light of all those things, what we at least wanted to do, understanding that the two parties wouldn't actually arrive at a final status agreement is to preserve the possibility of a two-state solution because we do not see an alternative to it. And, and I've said this directly to Prime Minister Netanyahu, I've said it uh, inside of Israel, I've said it uh, to Palestinians as well. I don't see how this issue gets resolved in a way that
0: maintains Israel as both Jewish and a democracy. Now, we all want Israel to figure out a solution to live peacefully with its neighbors. But it's up to the neighbors to live peacefully with the Israelis. We all want the violence to stop. But with American leaders like these, whose words encourage the actions of Hamas, it will be a long time before we ever see peace come to the Middle East. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. And so, bringing it up to today, we're going to talk about um, something you think is old, but it isn't old, because it could be new again. The book is called Shadow Strike. The author is Yaakov Katz, and it reads like thriller fiction. It's all true. Now, although the events in the book took place in 07, Syria and their nuclear enabler in Shadow Strike, that is North Korea, that is Syria and North Korea together, built a nuclear power, a nuclear reactor, and they are still global nuclear threats, that could destabilize not only the Middle East, but also the entire planet. We're speaking with the author Yaakov Katz, Shadow Strike Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power. Welcome to the Savage Nation.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: Let's start with today's news, Mr. Katz, if you don't mind. The deadliest fighting in Israel since 2014 between Israel and uh, the Palestinians living in Gaza. What is this about?
3: I think it's simple what it's about, and you know... Dr. Savage, you've spoken about this plenty, is is that this is about a terrorist organization that is simply bent on Israel's destruction, and no matter what happens, Israel pulls back to the international border, Israel gives in, allows money to be transferred, Israel opens up the border, Israel does whatever they want, no matter what, they keep on firing rockets, they keep on trying to kill Israelis and Jews. That's what it's about.
0: Well, look, I agree with you, but this is one of those conundrums for which there seems to be no solution. And I know your book is about something else, and nobody has the solution or unless, unless you have something new. The Israelis gave Gaza to the Palestinians. I'll never forget it. And they were warned not to do it. Gaza was a thriving um, market, vegetable, fruit community, flowers that the Israelis had developed carved out of the desert. They were exporting flowers to Europe. And I believe it was under the general. Who was the general who gave it back, who became prime minister? I never th- at the oh, time.
3: Mario Sharon was then the prime minister.
0: Right. And nobody would believe that a hardliner like him would give back Gaza. They gave it back. The first thing the Palestinians did when they got Gaza was not export flowers to Holland, but rip out the hoses that were in the greenhouses and try to turn them into bombs. So how does this ever end?
3: I don't know that it ends. You know, sadly, and I think this is also kind of what what my book, Shadow Strike, is about, is that it, this conflict doesn't end. It, it's something that, sadly, is going to be part of Israel's story. It's been part of the Jewish people's story for millennia. It's been part of Israel's story since it was established. Yeah, on, on Thursday, Israel will be marking 71 years of statehood and independence as the modern Jewish state. And sadly, as you know... We've been fighting wars every decade, sometimes more than one a decade. Uh, these, These cycles of violence with Hamas is something that, unfortunately, until they decide to stop and lay down their weapons and recognize Israel and want to live peacefully alongside Israel, this will continue. And what Syria was trying to do back in 2007, like you mentioned before, to build a nuclear reactor, get nuclear weapons, was all about the same objective. How can we deter Israel? How can we undermine Israel, weaken Israel? How can we potentially destroy Israel? And Israel successfully stopped the Syrians from being able to do that. That's what that book
0: is about. Well, but the propaganda line is that the Jews don't belong in the Middle East. We, we can go over this, uh, and let's not waste our time again. The The, the left wing in America says the, uh, the Jews don't belong there. It's originally Palestinian land. Here in Israel, I'm sorry, here in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Muslim Society was found out to have been having uh children in a play in philadelphia america yeah performing a play we will chop off the heads for allah now if they're brainwashing little children to kill jews and non-muslims how does this ever end
3: you know uh golda meir israel's prime minister back in the 1970s uh once had a, She had a line, and this was said 45 years ago, and it's still relevant today. If they lay down their weapons tomorrow, there will be peace. If we lay down our weapons tomorrow, we will cease to exist. And sadly, that's the case. I think mm-hmm. Israel has, has repeatedly stretched out its hand, tried to make peace with its Palestinian neighbors, numerous rounds of negotiations, pulled out of territory, handed over territory, you name it. And and sadly, we're just not yet there. And all these, these, these lies and, and, and incitement that if Israel continues to occupy Gaza, that's completely false. Israel is no longer in Gaza, pulled back the last inch of the international border. Gaza has a, has a shared border with Egypt. They could go into Egypt if they want, but the Egyptians don't want them, right? Because this is a, a people and a place that is ruled by a terrorist entity called Hamas.
0: Now, look, your book is about a very important topic, because I'm sure it'll happen again. Korea collaborates with Syria, builds a nuclear reactor secretly. The Israelis find out about it. They probably watched it being constructed, uh, and they destroy it in in, in 2007. Your book is called Shadow Strike, and we're going to talk about it for sure, because I don't think the story is over yet. But, Mr. Katz, I see an article of yours today in the Jerusalem Post. Why does Israel need the American peace What is that about? You're basically saying, why do we need Jared Kushner to tell us what to do?
3: Well, right. right. I think that, you know, the U.S. wants to roll out this plan and I think they have the right intention and they want to try to help make peace within the Middle East. But the question that needs to be asked is, Israel should be deciding for itself what it wants to do. Right. 71 years of
0: statehood. Yeah, yeah, well, it's it's not a brand new country that we need all of a sudden a new administration is going to come. What are they coming up with that's so new?
3: Right, no, and I appreciate what they're doing. I'm not saying they're not friends of Israel, but I really think that the Israeli people and the Israeli government should be deciding what's in its best interest. That, that's what a sovereign state does. And yep. what, what kind of upsets me, and that's why I wrote that piece, was we need to decide what's in our best interest. <laughs> Is it going to be one state? Is it going to be two states? Is it going to be three states? But let's decide what's for us, not have someone else tell us what they think we should be doing.
0: I understand what you're saying. And the American plan, in other words, come up with uh, was created by Jared Kushner and others in essence, is imposing a plan upon Israel, which is a sovereign state, but that brings us to the Palestinian people. How many Palestinians live in the West Bank and Gaza? Uh,
3: if you put them together, you're looking at about uh, 4 million, 4 million and a bit possibly, uh, between the West Bank and the Gaza Strip.
0: And, and how, many, how many Jewish Israelis are there in Israel proper?
3: 6 million Jewish Israelis, 2 million Israeli Arabs, And that's where this demographic problem potentially occurs, right? Right,
0: because the Jewish people are not reproducing or having babies at the same rate as the Palestinians, are they?
3: Not exactly at the same rate, but it's it's almost even today. You have about 2.9 children per Jewish woman and about 3 per Palestinian woman. Wow,
0: I didn't know that. I didn't know that the Israelis are still uh, producing babies. I thought they went by the way of uh, Italy.
3: No, it's the, it's the Jewish guilt. If you have a Jewish mother, you got a lot of Jewish guilt. <laughs> a lot of kids.
0: Or well, I bet if you break down amongst the 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 Jews living in Israel, you break down the the Ashkenazim versus the Sephardim, for those listening, is is that broken out differently?
3: I don't know how to break it down, but there's no I think what you're also touching on is if you look at the ultra orthodox Jews in Israel, right, what are known as the Haredim, uh, these are the very yes. servant shoes. These people have a lot more kids.
0: So Ten, twelve children, right? Well, the state helps take care of. Yeah, don't get don't get me started on the Orthodox. God bless them all. We all uh, love them, but aren't there factions that refuse to fight in the in the military?
3: It's a problem. It's not that they refuse to fight, they refuse to enlist. And and, and the problem there becomes that you have only a certain part of Israel that's carrying the national burden of the mandatory and compulsory military service.
0: Well, don't they realize that without those who are fighting for Israel, defending Israel, whether it's, as described in your book, Shadow Strike, taking out a nuclear reactor in Syria, that without the military there would be no Israel? Without Israel, their orthodoxy would have no place?
3: You know, they have... Their belief, they have their belief in God, and uh, they think that God is always going to be on their side. I can't. Now, I've heard
0: it. I, I've hung around with the Lubavitcher for years, you know, and I teach them one lesson. The Israelis learned it's great to have a Bible in one hand, but you need an Uzi in the other, else you don't live at all. You wind up in a gas chamber. Well said. Very well said. Right, an Uzi in one hand and a Bible in the other, or you wind up in a gas chamber. They haven't learned that yet. Anyway, let's get back to what the Israelis learn in your great book, Shadow Strike. And it's about blowing up, in plain English, a nuclear reactor that the Syrians secretly built. Now, they secretly built it, or it was an open secret?
3: Oh, no, it was a complete secret. Uh, Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, kept it a secret from his own cabinet, from his own chief of staff. Hmm. Only a handful of people in Syria knew about it. It was in collaboration with the North Koreans. Israel discovered it by, by, by sheer luck, um, they decided to raid the hotel room of a Syrian uh, scientist who was traveling to Vienna to attend meetings at the International Atomic Energy Agency in, that, in, in Austria. They raided his hotel room, they downloaded stuff from his computer, and they came up with photos showing the construction of a reactor in northeastern Syria. And that sent into motion... Uh, planning, intelligence gathering, hmm. cooperation between Israel and the United States then it was President Bush here, Prime Minister Omer back in Israel. a lot of cooperation, a lot of debates, a lot of arguments between those two of what should be done until ultimately Israel decided to take action on September 6, 2007 to take out that reactor.
0: Now when uh, let me see if I can follow this on the average listener here. we're talking to today's by today's standards 2007 is ancient history. But we just witnessed a Syrian civil war, which is more, is it more or less over, by the way, would you say?
3: It's more or less over because Assad has been saved by the Russians and the Iranians who came to his rescue. Yes.
0: Well, you can argue that that was not such a bad thing in a way because, uh, well, that's a separate story. I have mixed feelings on it. I think that Russia and the U.S. getting together and wiping out ISIS was the greatest victory of, of my current lifetime, given that Obama either dragged his heels on it or secretly was supporting uh, ISIS with, with weaponry. I, I mean, I, I've heard all sorts of stories. I've read all sorts of stories that we had operate operators. they helping ISIS. That the whole story made no sense to me.
3: No, it was a great victory, but you have to keep in mind is that now Iran is stronger than it was before, and ISIS was a challenge. ISIS. Oh, wait, hold on.
0: Because wait, but this is important. This is the essence of your book, in a way, uh, and what's going on today in the news. Because ISIS was defeated, and ISIS was a factotum of Iran. Is that what you're saying?
3: Well, you, Iran is now is now controlling Syria. You have you have Russia there, but you also have Iran there. You have Iran. In Iraq, you have Iran controlling Hezbollah in Lebanon. Mm. You basically have Iran going from Iran through Iraq, through Syria, into Lebanon, taking over the Middle East. And Iran, is not they're not a good actor, right? You know, what the book talks about, and you said, yes, yeah, to some extent it's ancient history, but it's a fascinating tale. of Espionage, diplomatic intrigue, how things work, military might encourage, but it also tells us of what might happen in the future. It tells us about when we look at Iran, and today, yeah, they're in the nuclear deal, and they're kind of abiding by it, but when the moment that deals up, they're just a jump away from a nuclear weapon. What does Israel do then? Well, Israel already twice, in 1981, and as I outlined in Shadow Strike in 2007, took action unilaterally against the world to take out a nuclear reactor because it viewed that reactor as a threat of existential nature. And that is something that Israel might have to do one day when it comes to Iran. Talk about North Korea. The Koreans were building this reactor for Mm. the Koreans, right? Korea is still a major problem for the world. Mm. You know, Iran, we're talking about maybe one day getting nuclear weapons. The Koreans already have them. They were caught with the greatest act of proliferation of nuclear technology in the history of mankind.
0: Right, and by the way, they're they're taunting Trump right now. Rocket Man is now taunting Trump. Over the weekend or last week, he was firing some new rockets, wasn't he?
3: He was right. So you know, these guys back in 2007 caught selling nuclear technology to the Syrians, building for them a nuclear reactor. This was only this was after they had tested only one nuclear weapon. You know what's happened in the year since? They've tested another six. They keep on testing ballistic missiles. They just basically say to the world, "We don't care. We can do whatever you want. You can all go to hell." And it's a big what if, because you got to wonder, had the world taken action after it learned of that cooperation between North Korea and Syria and done something to the North Koreans back then, would the world be in this problem that it is today? I don't know the answer to that, but it's, it's, a, it's a damn good question and one that we need to consider next time we face a similar challenge.
0: Well, that is correct. And the real question for me is, you write this book about a secret mission, but it was a secret construction of a nuclear reactor, how were you able to learn the inside story of such a high-level mission? Not only, Wait, not only of the of the military mission, but of the nuclear reactor, the details. How did you learn all of this? Well, you know, like you said, it took place
3: uh, uh, over 10 years ago. For the first few years, no one said a word. I was intrigued. I was, at the time, the military correspondent for the Jerusalem Post. Now I'm the editor of the paper. But back hmm. then,
0: I, I, my curiosity. You, wait, you're the editor of the Jerusalem... of the J-Post? I am. That's right. Oh, my God. Had I only known, I would have put on a prayer shawl. <laughs>
3: um, I, I, uh, I I covered that story as a reporter, and I, I tried desperately to gather information at the time. Back in 07, 08, 09, no one would talk. And over the years, I started to crack away at some sources and started to get insight into what would ha- what had really happened. And it was a story that that blew my mind. It was a story that had never been told. We all know about Entebbe when the Israeli commandos flew there to rescue their France
0: hostages in nineteen. Right. There's been many movies about the, the, the raid on Entebbe. Is, is, this, is this is this mission that you describe in Shadow Strike as daring as that?
3: You know what I'll tell you, doctor, it's even more daring than that. It has more intrigue, it's got more courage, more more secret operations and commando. They were they were helicoptering commandos to go near the reactor. You had you get an mm. insight by the way. You know, we all talk about a lot of this Ye- unbreakable alliance between Israel and the United States, but rarely do we get to see what goes on beyond the veil and the curtain.
0: And how in- does Israel still produce warriors? That's what I want to know, you know. As an American living here in the land of in the horn of plenty, uh, you know you have to be a little aware. I mean, I've had stalkers and this and that. But how do the Israelis, given that it's a modernistic society, very oriented towards pleasure? You know, the the dances, the drugs, it's all there. How do they still produce a warrior class, Mister Katz? You know, that's a secondary story for me. How do they still instill in them really a love for country, which seems to be dying here in America?
3: it's what we spoke about before in the beginning of our conversation and we're going to be commemorating 71 years of statehood but in those 71 years there has never been a day of quiet the threats still exist and while you're right people lead a good life they party they know how to enjoy themselves but at the end of the day you got a hamas terrorist organization in gaza you got syria building a nuclear reactor you got the iranians on the brink of nuclear weapons you got hezbollah with 130,000 missiles aiming every corner of that of, of the jewish state they have no choice with their back up against the wall they have no choice but to fight and and sadly that's the reality so when that's the reality that's the hand that you've been given you, you got to play with it and that's what. so
0: you know it's an interesting thing from a from almost um, um I, I hate to bring in religion again you could almost say that the threats from the palestinians are making the israelis stronger and keep them strong
3: on the one hand, look, it, it keeps the military on its toes. It ensures that we're always going to have a force that knows how to fight and is prepared to fight. But it also, you know, it comes at a price. A country that's constantly in battle, a country mm-hmm. that's constantly on the forefront of a battlefield, that, are, that does something to the soul of that country. And that, that's not something, you know, we, we all wish and pray that Israel wouldn't be where it is, right, in that sense. We want a stable Israel, a peace-living Israel. We're not yet there, but I think that that's the goal, right? We, we, we prefer there not to be this terrorism threat. We want to live like Switzerland, if we only could, right? Sadly, our neighbors aren't Belgium and France.
0: Well, I don't think that's ever going to change. When you see them training their children to kill Jews, how can it change? I always thought that in time, as the Palestinians lived in the modern world with the Internet, with their natural human tendency, as all other humans towards the very same thing that other humans like, which is peace, harmony, pleasure, whatever, eventually the children and the women would change the nature of this Palestinian situation. I haven't seen it yet, though, have you? Not, you neither? I, haven't see,
3: I have not seen it yet either. It's sad, it's unfortunate. You would, you would think it would happen. Look, I'll tell you even more than that. Israel's known as the startup nation, right? You get the most amazing, innovative technology coming out of Israel across the world. If the Palestinians only want it, If they only made the decision, they could be partners with Israel in this. This could improve their lives a hundredfold, right? I understand. No, I
0: understand. And by the way, I know people who know the Arab people very well. I've known them for 50 years who always told me. I learned this back in the 60s from professors who were international travelers that the Palestinians amongst all Arabs are the smartest of all Arab people. It's amazing to me that with their uh, attention to destroy, if it was uh, applied to the attention to, to create and to give life, they could be the leader's. They could be amongst the great leaders of the world.
3: I think you're right. they definitely could, but they have to get they have to come to terms with the fact that there is a Jewish state and it's not going to disappear. The moment they recognize that, life will change for everyone.
0: So then get back to the book for a minute. Shadow Strike. Who were the men who did this In your book, do you show pictures of them, by the way?:
3: We don't have pictures of them. you know the, the actual pilots, for example, who I met with them, you know, I'll tell you something. They were, for example, they can't be revealed by name. They, they
0: keep oh, okay. So. To, the, to this day, they remain hidden. For, they don't want retribution for them and their family.
3: Yeah, remain classified. But I want to tell you something about these guys. They were told to train for an operation that would take place about 400, 500 miles from Israel. They weren't told the target. Only the day of, only mm. the day of, a few hours before they were boarding their F-15s and F-16s to fly into Syria. Were they told you're going to bomb a nuclear reactor? And I spoke with these pilots and mm. they were shaking, right? They, they were called that day as the most significant, important day of their lives. That they, they, to know that that's their target, they know that they're going, embarking on a mission that is basically has one goal to save the state of Israel. Because imagine if Syria, you mentioned ISIS before. Imagine Syria had been able to complete the building of that reactor. It had gone live and active. Israel wouldn't have been able to take action. In 2014, you know who took over the region called Deir Azur where that reactor had been built? No. Before, ISIS. So imagine
0: oh my God.
3: ISIS got its hands on a nuclear reactor and nuclear weapons. Gee. Do you know what a nightmare that would be for the yeah, world? Of
0: course I do. They would have they would have used it in maybe a new, uh, suitcase nuke. You can't. No one knows what could have happened. Israel. Now, th- these men who did this mission, how many planes were involved? Is that classified? No, there were about
3: eight or nine planes that were involved. You had four or five in the front, another four in the back. who Were, w-
0: were they intercepted by Syrian jets?
3: Israel, they flew so low to avoid radar detection. Ehud Barak, who was at the time the defense minister told
0: me. Oh, you know, I interviewed Ehud Barak last year. Amazing.
3: Yeah. He lived at the time on the 23rd floor of a tower, of an apartment building in, in Tel Aviv, the planes flew lower than the 23rd floor of his apartment, <laughs> all the way to Syria. I mean, you know, so he told me how the next day he goes up to his apartment, gets a cup of coffee that morning, because they stayed up all night, and he's looking out at the view of Tel Aviv, and, he, and, he, and he's blown away. He's like, they actually flew lower than that,
0: right? Amazing. They
3: avoided radar, but after they bombed, bombed the reactor, they got to climb to higher altitude, let their bombs drop, and then they get detected by the Syrian radar. Syria tries to fire off some missiles, but it's too late ready, Israelis are long gone. They, they, they hit thrusters, and they get the hell out of there before anything can happen. You,
0: you mean they were away from it in altitude or in distance?
3: They were away from it, A, in altitude, but also in distance. One of the things that they did which caused Israel some diplomatic trouble is that part of Syria is now far from the border with Turkey. So oh. Israel, the jets... Kind of flew into Turkey. Later, you saw there were some fuel tankers they carried for extra fuel that they dropped these fuel tankers and they landed inside Turkish uh, territory. Oh. That upset the Turks a bit, but Israel managed. Well,
0: you mean the, the fuel tankers dropped the extra fuel in Turkish territory? The, the F-15s and F-16s carried external fuel. Oh, I see. So they dropped their tanks in Turkey. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, so <laughs> that could that could have triggered a an, an, uh, little reaction from Turkey. It's it did. astounding. It, 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 Look, having written I, two books on Israel's military, Mister Katz, this new one is probably your best one, Shadow Strike. You've written on Israel's military. You're the former military correspondent uh, and defense and analyst for the Jerusalem Post. Where do you think Israel stands today as a power in the region?
3: I, I, I think Israel is the most uh, powerful military in the Middle East today. Right. The the uh, the. The IDF is the most advanced military, technologically speaking. It's the most powerful military. It's the most moral military. I mean, you see, for example, just these past couple of days, Hamas fires over 700 rockets into Israel indiscriminately, or each single one aimed to try to kill Israeli civilians. Does Israel carpet bomb Gaza? No. Does Israel just blow up buildings? No. Israel targets only the bad guys, right? So not only are we technologically superior... We're also more moral, and we hold ourselves to a higher ethical standard than our enemies.
0: I agree with you 100%, and I'm a strong and ardent supporter of Israel and Jews' right to live. I don't know how this ever gets solved. Nobody has the answer. I don't know how Jared Kushner has the answer. Maybe he has some miraculous uh, vision that I don't have, but I, hope, I wish him the best. Do you think there'll be a peaceful resolution between Israel and its neighbors in the region in your lifetime?
3: In my lifetime, I hope there will be. I hope there will be. I think there's a chance. I think that as, as we continue to grow as a nation, as people like you, and I want to thank you for continuing to tell the truth. You know, I, 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 was, I remember the first time I heard your radio show was back in 2008, and I happened to be driving up the, the Florida Turnpike to go give a lecture up in Gainesville and I'm listening, it was after a couple of yeshiva students in Jerusalem had been murdered, and I turn on the radio, and I hear you, and I'm saying to myself, who is this guy? Who's this guy who's defending Israel the way he is? It didn't make sense to me. And then I heard who was. You <laughs> know it what? didn't make sense to you. That's funny. It doesn't, because lo- you know what? It, it, there's not enough people who are out there spreading the truth, shining a light on what's true, standing up for what's right. You know what, I want to thank you also, but as long as we have people like you who are telling the truth, as long as we stand up for what's right as a nation, as long as we're strong, eventually they will have to come to terms with this fact, and they will have to realize that there's no alternative but to try to live alongside us in peace.
0: We can talk for hours, you and I, but I know that you're busy, and I want to thank you for being with us, and I recommend everyone listening to the show check out a copy of Shadow Strike by Yaakov Katz. This is not just a writer. This is not a man who just wrote a quick book to make a quick book. This man actually studied the issue. He spoke to the pilots. He spoke to people in the Mossad. He exposes what was done and what might have to be done again. It's a fabulous book, and I recommend Shadow Strike very, very much. And I want to thank you very much for being with us, Mr. Katz, on the Savage Podcast. The Westwood One Podcast Network.